Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today we're going to be going into our third part of our deep dive into George and Fredrickson's take on white supremacy. Now, you may have noticed that I did say third part and not final part, as we mentioned in our last episode. That's because while we were doing the research, we felt that in order to best present this information to you all, it would be better to split it up into two parts. The topic of today's episode is going to be a comparison of the United States and South African struggle to gain unity amongst the white population. And the reason why Elisa said South African as opposed to the Cape is because today we're going to be taking a more comprehensive look into South African history as a whole. At first glance, like a lot of things involving the South African history and the United States history, it looks like they don't have a lot in common when it comes to this unification that we were just talking about. But upon further inspection, it becomes pretty clear that actually they have a lot in common. If you look at the raw numbers of these events, it's not going to seem like this happened in the same time frame or timeline, but it actually did, and I'll explain a little bit more about that. For instance, you might look at when the U.S. Revolution happened, which was in 1783. While South Africa didn't declare itself a republic or become completely unified until 1961. I know those dates sound extremely different, but let me lay it out a little bit clearer. While the United States Revolution happened in 1783, something that hadn't happened yet was the Civil War. The Civil War ended in 1865, and that event is one that many historians believe is a turning point to true unification within the U.S. Fredrickson actually goes on to say that he doesn't even think that unification happened after the war either. There was too much leftover tension from the North and South politicians involved in the war. So he actually believes that true unification wasn't reached until the late 1900s, which puts it a little bit more in line with when South Africa became unified in 1961. We're going to do a lot of podcasts involving and centered around the Civil War. So lots of these topics that we bring up today are going to be involved. But something I want to say right off the bat is while Fredrickson holds that belief, and I would say I myself am a little inclined to agree with him that true unification wasn't present even after the Civil War ended. Some historians will disagree, so I want that to be out there just so you know that it's not revered as the only truth about the Civil War. Also, another thing that puts the two places a little bit more in line is that while there wasn't a mainstream revolution happening in the Cape or in South Africa at the time of the U.S. Revolution in 1783, there were a lot of mini rebellions going on throughout the entirety of the Cape's history as well as other colonies in South Africa. Certainly not on the same level as the American Revolution, but lots of ideas of enlightenment and wanting to have more representation within government was plentiful throughout South African colonial history. What's important to understand about both the American Revolution and these rebellions in South Africa is that neither of them were fighting to extend their freedom to non-whites. They were wanting to strengthen and solidify their own freedoms. Yeah, actually, a lot of the many rebellions that were happening in South Africa had nothing to do with Enlightenment ideals at all. Some of them were, but a lot of them were mostly about trying to avoid the racial equality or less strict racial lines that Britain was trying to impose on the colonies. Another big thing that's going to make them similar is that the American South 
and the rebellious South African colonists are going to be deeply set in their racism and desire to have white supremacy, while their opposing side, which would be the American North and the British Empire, are not going to have the same vested interest in ending racism, they're more interested in preserving order. You know, the 18th century is actually known as the age of domestic revolution in Western history. And that's because partly of the widespread Enlightenment ideals that are starting to push against old traditions in the wake of new ideas wanting democracy and representation and freedom, which of course is where the American Revolution comes from. And so because of this, the United States was actually founded on Enlightenment ideals, which brings up a really big issue specifically for the South. It puts them in a really bad spot. Basically, they now have to find a way to say, yes, we believe in freedom and equal opportunity while actively owning people. It doesn't really coincide well. This is not going to be something that their northern counterparts are going to have to deal with because they don't rely on a slave force. In the beginning of the North American colonies, as well as the Cape, they weren't using biological reasoning. Now, during this time, after the revolution and continuing on into the antebellum period, this is when we're going to start seeing these biological arguments start coming into play. They're actually being used on a pretty big level, and they're revered as proof as to why white people should be in charge. And the reason behind this is that if they could somehow prove in the tiniest bit that black people were different on a scientific level than white people, they could use that as leverage to justify slavery. And this is where we're going to get a lovely character known as Edward Long. He has been dubbed as the father of biological racism because in 1774, he conducted a study and concluded by the end of it that black people were in fact a lower form of humanity and even a different species as white people. Not everybody fell for this rhetoric, of course. In fact, pretty notable figures like Thomas Jefferson held much different convictions. Now, it's important to note that Jefferson actually held some pretty problematic views himself that included the assumption that there was an inferiority on an intellectual level between races. He did believe that regardless of whether they were somehow inferior intellectually or not, it would never be acceptable, no matter how inferior the human, to practice slavery. And Jefferson references this in his work, The American Dilemma, and he uses his words from the Declaration of Independence. This can be found on page 143 of George M. Fredrickson's work. To assert that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among there are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was simply to invoke Enlightenment doctrines as a justification for American independence. It also implicitly called into question the institution of slavery within the American colonies. These are the ideals that Jefferson had about America, and he wanted them to be true, but in practice, they just were not. Yeah, and speaking of those inalienable rights that Jefferson references in both the Declaration of Independence and then again in his American Dilemma, 
people are going to start claiming that one of the most important natural rights is private property. Now, the claim to private property they deem as an essential natural right because it allows them to claim their slaves as their private property. So instead of granting slaves human rights themselves, they fall under the umbrella of being owned by their masters. So now there are two distinct ways that somebody can efficiently support slavery. We see the rejection of the philosophy of equality altogether, or they adopt the notion that Edward Long presents them, saying that black people do not classify as humans in the first place. And for years after the United States is first established, this does say a very sore spot. There's not a lot of feasible dialogue between Northerners as to how to deal with the abolishment of slavery. So the ideal default that everyone would fall back on, whether they were Northern and didn't like slavery or Southern and really wanted slavery, is that it was a necessary evil. Because while Northerners didn't want slavery, the last thing they wanted to do was deal with an entire human population of people they didn't want to give rights to. And Jefferson even concedes to this notion in his American Dilemma piece. He states very clearly that there's no good answer on what to do next or how to litigate this issue because there's such a deeply rooted prejudice against black people. And if the federal government did try to give them rights, it would only end, in his opinion, with the complete extinction of one race or the other. So essentially, there was no peaceful way to make this happen. He was right about there not being peace because only Anglo-Saxon peoples were allowed citizenship, so anyone outside of that would always be marginalized. Now that we've effectively set the groundwork for what's going on in the U.S. front, let's go ahead and move on to South Africa and see what's happening there. As previously mentioned, for the most part, these many rebellions that were going on were highly policeable by the dominant empire at the time. In fact, in 1778, while they were still under Dutch rule, a pamphlet circulated the Cape, heavily inspired by the ideals of enlightenment. And while this pamphlet, as well as other small rebellious events, never led to a lot of physical uprising, they did help establish a deeply rooted unrest among the colonists towards the ruling power. Now, once Britain takes over the colony, a lot of the uprisings that we start to see are based almost completely upon the desire to uphold white supremacy. Their grievances directly pertained to the treatment of non-whites. Now, as we've said before, when the British first arrived at the Cape, they really wanted to instill a lot of order because they felt so much of the colony had been mismanaged, especially regarding their policies pertaining to race. Most of their grievances lied with the targeted laws Britain instilled, attempting to limit the power of the masters. The British government did not do this in order to protect the slave, but it was more as a direct attack at the overwhelming power that they had anointed themselves. And if you'll remember about the Cape, they do not rely on slave labor the way that the South does. But rather, at that time, they began to use the Khoi Khoi peoples as indigent servants. They could easily exploit them as contracted workers. In 1797, when the British started trying to give certain rights to protect the Khoi Khoi, there was a huge backlash. Specifically, these farmers were angry because they were no longer allowed to brutally punish the Khoi Khoi workers like they wanted to. So the farmers felt that they had the right to punish the Khoi Khoi workers in whatever way they saw fit, no matter how sadistic it was. 
Now, switching back to the United States, while the Declaration of Independence was used in anti-slavery rhetoric, the Constitution left everything about slavery up to the state. This was because they couldn't get the southern states to join if they condemned slavery, but they couldn't get the northern states to agree if they completely allowed for it. The Constitution was a compromise between these two opposing viewpoints. And because it left so much room for slavery, it became the main document that people who were pro-slavery would reference to justify their ideology on a legal level. And speaking of things that are on legal levels, these laws are going to strengthen leading up to the Civil War for the sake of white supremacy. Fredrickson brings up the work of somebody named Joe Colville, who has a very interesting way of describing the different types of racism seen within the American North and the American South at this time. He actually uses temperature to describe it. So the demonitive type of racism is associated with heat, while the adversive type of racism is associated with cold. Those who act with heat have a fiery vengeance that often comes out in overt violence and discrimination, while the cold type, in the face of any type of discrimination, puts defensive walls up and ices out the oppressed class as a whole. And really, there's not a single group in America that is without its prejudice. Even abolitionists hold very strong prejudices in themselves. And that's evident through a couple things. First of all, almost all of them lean into the ideals that Jefferson sets forth and adopts Jeffersonianism completely, which has the contingency of inferior intellect. And even one of the most famous abolitionist works at the time, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is frothed with racism and racial stereotypes. And speaking of abolitionists, this is probably a good time to distinguish the difference between the abolitionist movement and anti-slavery movement. Abolitionists were a group of people made up of evangelical Christians who held what was seen at the time as radical beliefs because they thought that not only should slavery end, but equality for all should be ensured by the state. This movement is going to represent a very small minority group in the U.S. at the time. Adversely, the anti-slavery movement that was heavily welcomed in the North had nothing to do with the rights of black people and everything to do with the threat they put on white people. In fact, they saw slavery as a direct threat to capitalism. And as they desired to appear as the perfect capitalist nation, they didn't like that. They also didn't like the way it made them look to other Western nations because every other civilized, well-respected Western nation at the time had already abolished slavery and had gotten rid of slave trade amongst all their commonwealth. When it came to white supremacy, the North was more than okay with it. In fact, they had white supremacy within themselves and their own government. White supremacy was a keystone of how they policed their own small black population. But what it came down to is that they felt poor white people were unable to properly experience their own rise within capitalism while slavery existed. Freeing slaves wasn't even talked about in a serious way until the very end of the Civil War and was only brought up by the North as a bargaining tool in order to convince black people to join the Union Army. So they never had vested interest in the emancipation of black people until it benefited them. 
In the 1830s, the North overwhelmingly so hated the abolitionist movement. Lots of their anti-slavery debates would break out in mobs, and trigger warning here, the lynching of especially bold abolitionists. They're completely disgusted by the idea of interracial marriage and other things being allowed within the scope of equality among races. And because of this deep-seated dislike for the abolitionist movement, two of the most violent riots broke out in New York City in 1834 and in Philadelphia in 1838, all because of abolitionists showing up at these debates. And a lot of the pushback against anti-slavery and abolitionism was from the poor white groups. It was comforting for them to have a clear outgroup that was below them as we previously discussed in other episodes. And by far and large, the anti-slavery movement was well-received within the North, but it certainly still wasn't the only viewpoint. In fact, there were a lot of Northern conservatives who were nervous to bring up the talk of slavery on any level, because they knew that the constitutional right to own slaves was the only thing keeping the country together. And if the discussion was pushed too far, the South would eventually secede, which of course we know is exactly what happens. And then we have the Southern sympathizers who thought that there was absolutely nothing wrong with slavery, and if America was going to have black people present, they would rather it be in the context of slavery rather than freed peoples. Politically, the South is going to double down on their response of the justification of slavery. People like John C. Calhoun, in his famous speech in 1837, defended the South by saying that slavery was not a necessary evil, but in fact a positive good, and the only way to have two races coexist so peacefully. And then we have people like William Yancey, who said colorful things involving the foundation of the nation. He's known for saying that the country was founded on two ideas. One, that the white man is the master race and shall rule over all other races. And two, black people are inferior and always will be. Interestingly enough, William Yancey actually perfectly sums up something known as heron folk democracy. Inherent folk democracy is a really good term to describe what we're going to see in both the United States and South Africa. It is the idea that there is one dominant race ruling over all others, and the minority races always stay subjugated and disenfranchised. Sticking with a solely biological explanation behind racism was not where the southern elites would stop. They became so ingrained in this belief that they often said black people were like children needing constant guidance and that they needed masters. In fact, the slaves that came to the United States through slave trade were the lucky ones because at least they would be able to reach their full potential under their master's keep. And this is something that lends itself to something that Fredrickson brings up in his writing called the Slavocrat. And within a Slavocratic society, the elites were no longer aristocrats, but instead were slavocrats who were defined by their defense of slavery. And of course, while the North wanted to keep peace, it was going to be short-lived because things kept coming up that would reopen the wound of slavery that the Constitution had sought to solve. Because once new land was added, it brought up the question once again whether the new state-to-be would be free or a slave state. We can see this with the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Missouri Compromise, that these political scenes are highly polarized. 
And then, of course, we have the emergence of radical Republicans. One you might know very well by the name of Abraham Lincoln took very strong stances against slavery. He believed continually bringing in black people to the country would only lead to a larger population to dispose of. Radical Northern Republicans usually took the stance of two different ways of handling ridding America of black people. They would say there should be a large deportation sending the black population back to Africa. Mind you, this is generations into slavery in this country, meaning that most of the time they had no idea which country these black people were coming from. And others proposed something close to the idea of colonization, devoting an entire part of the country separated from the rest in order to control the black population. One thing that was clear was that the South could not handle their black population the same way that the North handled theirs. The North had the black codes that wrote out the rules of white supremacy. And the reason those wouldn't work for the South was because population wise, some places had just as many white people as black people. And furthermore, the entire South was founded upon the subjugation of black people. So to instill these somewhat moderate black codes that were only partially oppressive did not appeal to them at all and certainly would not be well received by the mass majority. Another huge reason why the South didn't want these codes is because they didn't want to limit themselves. In other words, they were trying to figure out how to make sure they could stay just as violent as they were before. And while the economic foundation of the North was centered around equal opportunity, the South was dependent on their permanent mudsill or hereditary privilege. Just in case you're not familiar with the term mudsill, it means a permanent lower class of society. It got to the point where they really glorified their approach of owning slaves. In 1861, the vice president of the Confederacy believed that if you enslave people of the same race, then it's really evil to do so. So if a white man were to enslave another white man, that'd be ridiculous, ludicrous. But since black people were fit so well for the position of slavery, it was heroic that they had slaves. Ew. Yeah. So moving back to the Cape, within the time period of the 1820s to 1830s and their period of unrest from the British reform surrounding slavery. While most of the Dutch-speaking colonists were on the same page about not liking the new policies, a lot of them decided to just bite the bullet and make the best out of it. But during the years of 1834 and 1838, a lot of the Dutch-speaking colonists felt like some of these laws were made solely to antagonize them, and they felt a constant disrespect from the British rulers. One of their biggest grievances is that British missionaries had been converting the Khoikhoi, and that's because it empowered the Khoikhoi enough to give them alternatives outside of indentured servitude to the local farmers, which they felt greatly undermined the population of potential workers in the area. This disliking the Dutch-speaking colonists had towards British missionaries really reached its peak and developed into a bitter rivalry by the 1820s and 30s. Their main opponent in this took form in a one Reverend John Philip, who was truly doing the Ward's work, and this time I don't mean that sarcastically. Philip came to the colony in 1819 and by 1833 openly asserted his belief that people who were not white were in no way inferior. His beliefs are frequently in line with William Lloyd Garrison, who was a famous American abolitionist. But you see, Garrison had limits to the amount of effects he would have on a political scale because of the Constitution. Reverend John Philip at the time was sitting very pretty with the people who were in charge at the Cape. 
So he would use that in order to try and tear down some of the racial inequalities that were present. His greatest achievement took form in Ordinance Number 50, which was enacted in 1828, and it effectively liberated the indigenous peoples from restrictions on their economic freedom. They didn't have to carry around passes of identification anymore. They didn't have to apprentice their children to Europeans for more than a year. And on paper, they became virtually equal to the European citizens there. And the rebels in South Africa felt particularly disenfranchised, while in the American South, they felt they had a lot of political influence up until the election of Abraham Lincoln. The Cape didn't have any political representation at all. So some of the rebels that Elisa just mentioned will start to join together and form a tentative identity, where as a whole they feel that the man of the house should be in charge of how the house is run. So they don't want the British to tell them what they can and can't do to their servants. They want to be able to make that decision themselves. And there will soon be groups of people who decide to leave behind the established British colonies and roam the lands unclaimed by the British. Which, by the way, they were not unclaimed lands. They were just lands that weren't claimed by the overpowered European nations. But anyway, they took to the road in hopes of finding their own land to conquer, which would categorize them into the term Trek. There was a specific subset of Trekkers known as the Boer Trekkers. Before they officially broke away from Britain, in 1837, they released a manifesto known as the Great Trek. There were two main goals set by this manifesto. The first goal is that white people would be dominant. And the second goal is that they wanted to govern themselves. One interesting thing that was left out of this manifesto was any further justification of white dominance. They just figured it'd be a given that white people would be in charge. But interestingly, it will become the main pushback that British rule will receive. Even still, their numbers are going to be limited because they only guide themselves by the Bible itself. They were the pastoral people wandering amongst the heathens. And that's another reason why they didn't feel they had to justify their lack of desire to convert the heathens. But rather, they thought that it was their goal to live amongst the heathens. In addition to believing themselves to be a pastoral people amongst heathens, they also believed they had a special relationship with God and that they could communicate with him on levels others could not, that they were the chosen people. Because of this assertion, they especially hated Reverend John Philip because he was coming from a place of religion. They were deeply offended by the notion that anyone would be able to tell them something about religion. And, you know, because these people were less dependent on imported slaves, their goal was not to advocate slavery, but to advocate for serfdom. It was kind of like they wanted a bunch of little mini kingdoms to run amongst themselves. And so they were hoping for a sort of de facto political control, as opposed to one that was so fervently defined through vocabulary, like the South wanted. And this de facto political control they were going after was also a symptom of the fact that the Boer Trekkers were completely reliant upon the Bible, like I mentioned before. And so unlike the South, they're never going to bring biology up. So there are no secular arguments going on, which is really why they miss the mark of mass appeal, because they're only really coming from it from one perspective. So after feeling unrecognized by the British government, 
the Vore Trekkers are going to spend two years on the road between 1836 and 1838. They went kind of east and north of the original Cape Colony. So then in 1838, they come across an area known as Natal. It was currently run by the Zulu king at the time. The Vortrekkers are going to go against the Zulu king and his army. And though the Vortrekkers are greatly outnumbered, they end up prevailing by a landslide. Feeling that they won their victory fair and square, the Zulu king declared them the rightful rulers of the area. So this victory is extremely dangerous because what it did was effectively give legitimacy to the Vortrekkers in their mission. They saw this underdog triumph as proof that they were in fact the children chosen ones from God himself. They then declared this area the Republic of Natalia. In this republic, they limited the amount of African families that they could hold on the farm for work purposes. They did so partly to keep themselves separate from the other non-white tribes around them, but also to ensure that they wouldn't get overwhelmed by the amount of non-white people within the colony. In the United States, they did not need to utilize this approach of limiting the amount of slaves per household because they were not surrounded by other non-white tribes like the Vortrekkers were. Rather unsurprisingly, the Republic of Natalia was quite short-lived, and it was annexed by the year 1843 by the British government. The rebels were given a chance to come back to the colony that they had left, but they had to be willing to adopt the British race lines. And of course, most of them were too proud to go back to the colony after their original split, so most of them continued trekking for years to come. While the Republic of Natalia was short-lived, it was very impactful because it gave legitimacy to claims that the British should not have been in control in the first place. As a result, there were lots of small republics that began to pop up more frequently, and eventually, in 1852, acknowledged the over 20,000 Vortrekkers, and eventually, in 1854, withdrew their claim from the region altogether. This region would become known as the Orange Free State. Now, the Orange Free State is not going to be the only notable republic outside of British rule at the time. The other one is known as the Transvaal, which was a farming republic that shared many of the same convictions of the Orange Free State. Both these republics became so well established that by 1860, they were each able to collectively absorb the other mini republics on their respective sides. While they were allowed to remain republics, the British did keep a very close eye on them, and the tensions between them and the British was always pretty high. Both the Orange State and Transvaal are going to operate as heron folk democracies, and their policies reflected this. They didn't just ban interracial marriage, they took it a step further, and they even banned marriage amongst non-white people to each other. Also, some of the many republics that they had absorbed had policies referred to as the 10th degree. If you had any non-white heritage within the last 10 generations of your bloodline, you wouldn't be able to serve on the council. This was no doubt enacted as a direct fear of the interracial marriages that took place frequently within the Cape. Something you might find pretty interesting is that the constitution of the Orange Free State is almost identical to the American constitution. It is almost word for word the same, with the addition of one line that stated in no uncertain terms that only white people would be allowed citizenship. It's interesting that you bring up the American constitution because the true Heronvolk society that they had in the Orange Free State is what the American South pretended to be. 
And one of the reasons why the Orange Free State was able to maintain this Herrenbuch society is because they were able to maintain a culture that allowed for primitive and underdeveloped justifications for racism and slavery. To quote Fredrickson on page 197, However much they may have contributed to the mechanics of racial discrimination, Boers had little need or capacity to participate in the development of racism as an intellectualized doctrine. And if you're wondering what the word Boers means, it's a term used to reference the Dutch-speaking colonists. And while both of their governments are 100% reliant upon non-white oppression, it wasn't necessarily reliant upon their hate, and it certainly wasn't well-developed enough to be manipulative like we saw in the American South. It was based purely upon their own self-righteous idolization of themselves. It was less about non-whites deserving to be heathens and more about them just believing they are the bee's knees. And also these people didn't really care if they looked good to the British government. You know, they weren't focused on keeping a good face. While the South was reliant on getting other people to see them in a good light so they could continue to sustain their economic dependency on slavery. But that's not to water down what these people were truly about. Let's not forget their main grievance towards the British way of life was that they wouldn't be able to use excessive violence on their servants. Even so, though, this primitive view on white supremacy was kind of the polar opposite of what was happening in the American South. Because in a way, in the American South, the idea of racism was almost overdeveloped. But moving forward, let's go ahead and compare what we're going to be seeing in the political scope during attempted emancipation in both places. You see, the North had only promised emancipation to the black population in order to secure their victory against the South in the Civil War. But by doing so, that meant that they had to figure out how to reconstruct the unity of the nation by reintroducing the South, but it also at the same time had to balance introducing an entirely new group of citizens that were over 4 million newly freed slaves. And we're not going to see that problem in South Africa during its attempts of unification. They didn't have to do both things at once. In fact, they were really only striving for unity. But the major challenge that both of them are going to have to face is after emancipation, how are they going to replace the workforce? Now, in the American South, during 1865 and 1866, just after the Civil War has ended, they will try to enact very strict, extremely oppressive black codes, but they're not going to last long. The North responds by passing the 14th Amendment. Along with passing the amendment, the North does try a couple other tactics by demanding that black people do get paid for their service, and they tried to limit the length of contracts between black people and southerners, but it was only ever mildly effective and in the long run did not really make much of a difference. Because after the North pulled their military from the South, they're going to enact their own codes again. Almost all of them, by far and large, are extremely unconstitutional. Moving back over to the Cape, the laws that they enacted post-emancipation were supposed to be colorblind. In actuality, because they ignored the obvious racial discrimination in the Cape, they ended up overwhelmingly subjugating people of color. The power was consolidated back to white people 
and it actually strengthened the race lines. And so by 1856, the Cape had so much ambiguous legal authority over the non-white people, they actually had more power than the American South would ever see again. And this new lack of power was something the North was picking up on big time. And they tried to use this moment of weakness for the South to give themselves the most political power they could. In fact, at first glance, the North fighting so hard to give black people the rights they were promised after the Civil War made it look like they were really trying to come through on their promises and protect the black population. But the truth was they were just trying to make sure that they could lock down the black votes. So their attempts to make it safer for black people to vote had very little, if anything, to do with keeping black people safe. But it was the idea of making sure that they could control the black vote to strengthen the northern causes within the south so that the north could stay politically in charge. And the northern white people who did actually want to see black people safely vote and be able to fully practice their citizenship were definitely the minority again. Most people, as well as the federal government, didn't really care enough to make sure that those things actually happened. They were fairly neutral about black issues. Touching on the Cape once again about its attempt to enfranchise some of the non-white people there, another reason why it was much less dramatic as the one seen in the United States was also because it wasn't rushed. In fact, the whole thing happened at whatever rate that they wanted it to. Part of the reason why they didn't rush that is because a lot of people had the fear that the white people in government would want to enact laws that would openly oppress people of color. And in 1854, there was finally representation in the government for non-whites that eased that worry. On page 183, it says... The colonists accepted a political arrangement that gave former slaves and indigenous dependents a potential voice in government, not so much from egalitarian conviction as because they saw no threat to their social and political dominance from a colorblind franchise. So, for the most part, the people of the Cape at this point are not going to feel like they don't have power or control over the situation. We're going to see the polar opposite response from the South, where they feel completely disenfranchised and feared that it was going to be the fall of the white supremacy that they had taken years to build up. And keep in mind, not only is their lifestyle being put on the line, this is also coming from attacks that are from the same people who only moments ago were their enemies in war, which was the North. Well, from the Cape, it was coming from themselves, so they weren't fighting amongst each other. They were making these policies on their own accord. And though we're going to see a slight period of enfranchisement for non-white people in the Cape, it is unfortunately doomed to fail. Because they begin to enact policies that directly discriminated against people of color. For instance, they put a large limit on the amount of people who are able to vote. They did so because in a lot of the areas, white people were greatly outnumbered by people of color. So they felt that if they had too much of a voice, it would outnumber the white voice. They would work it into the language of the law so that it made it seem there was enough room for non-white people to vote. They would say things like, well, if you're able to read and you're able to write or if you can pass this test or you can do that, well, then you can vote. But really, they were just aggressively limiting them. So even though the British had made a small attempt to address the racism there, it ended up winning out anyway. We can see a similar development in the United States when the North starts having a hands-off approach because, quite frankly, they started to care less. 
In the book on page 186, it says, In both cases, the ability of local whites to discriminate against blacks was enhanced by a decline in the humanitarian and egalitarian component and the liberal capitalists of the metropole. And throughout this time in the Western world, the surgence of humanitarianism that we had seen before is definitely starting to die down. People aren't taking it as seriously. They're very dismissive of it. And things kind of, in a way, revert back to old ways of thinking, or at least not as directly about equality anymore. And honestly, the question wasn't so much how can we be equal? It was how can we reconstruct and maintain racism to fit the ideas of government we have today? A lot of people will start giving up on non-white people, using flimsy excuses and examples to make their point that they were always supposed to be lower class anyway. When things weren't immediately perfect after the Civil War and black people were working with absolutely no money because they came from no savings, their families had not had any time to root themselves within the society, a lot of white people said, oh, since they're not thriving yet, they must just suck at being human. So I guess they were right to think that they were the lower class. Also, people are starting to accept the idea of black people being biologically different. In response to this biological racism picking up some more traction, the pseudo-Darwinism idea of survival started happening amongst the races as well. And when they weren't directly opposing black rights in general, they had a progressive stance, and I do use quotations and so does Fredrickson for that, and the progressive stance essentially was the white men's burden. If you're looking for a notable person who held that belief, that would be Theodore Roosevelt. A lot of people feel that this stance was a direct guilt that a lot of northerners had built up after the Civil War. Because if black people were not able to do well within America, that was a direct reflection in the Northerners' judgment to give them rights in the first place. And unfortunately, there was a pretty big spokesman for black people at the time known as Booker T. Washington, and yes, we will be talking more about him in the future. (laughs) So if you don't know who he is, you will, but you probably know who he is. He actually agreed with this concept. He thought that there should be a certain period of assimilation for the black people to get used to the white way of life. And he even said that black people shouldn't have political equality until after this resting period. Basically, he thought white people should be in charge in order to introduce black people to white culture. Yeah. (laughs) Another thing that this ideology did was bring us back to the previous assertion that black people were like children. On page 191, it says, Segregation and de facto disenfranchisement could be countenanced on the assumption that they were needed to keep a child race from trying to climb the evolutionary ladder too rapidly. And a lot of black people are going to view this as a complete betrayal of what the progressives had promised them and what they had fought so hard for in the Civil War. Fredrickson actually cites somebody by the name of Paul Buck who put it in a very precise light. Buck essentially said that black people paid a heavy price so that white people could be reunited in a common nationality. Which is very tragic and disheartening for the black community. They're trying to make it in this new world, finally allowed citizenship, and are completely deserted by the few politicians who were speaking out for them in the first place. We kind of jumped ahead before telling you a little bit more about the South African road to unification, so let's go back and clarify some things to give you a little more context. In the 1870s and the 1880s, the British Empire was having a lot of trouble with the Transvaal 
and Orange Free State. Once they realized in 1877 that Transvaal was officially bankrupt, they took full advantage of this and annexed them. The annex didn't last long because in 1880 they rebelled and by 1881 they had defeated the British troops in the Battle of Majuba Hill, regaining their independence. That little debacle was known as the First Anglo-Boer War. I know what your next question is, why is it called the First? Because there was a second, this particular conflict that the war would be raging about is when they found gold in 1886 in Transvaal. Many British colonists would go to Transvaal to try and acquire gold themselves. And to say the least, they were not met with a welcome wagon. So for the years of 1890 and 1892, war broke out. And you know, the British only sent people because they didn't want Transvaal to become an economic powerhouse of the South Africa's. Notably, during both the First and the Second Anglo-Boer War, neither side would use black people in the fight. I think that's interesting because it's exactly what the North did in order to win the war, so they kind of avoided having to promise any emancipation because they just didn't involve them in the fight. And you know, technically the British do win this Second Anglo-Boer War, but they didn't really win on a social level because what it eventually leads to is a unification of South Africa. And because the British peoples are outnumbered, it's really going to be in favor of the Dutch-speaking people and the Trekkers. And as I mentioned before, British left room for them to establish their own self-government. They did that by the year 1907, which of course is when they decided that only white people would be given rights. You know how in the United States, they have the policy that they often refer to called separate but equal? They don't even really try to hide it in South Africa. Their policy was separate and unequal. Not even subtle. Like we said before, after the initial hope for emancipation in both cases, what's going to happen is that white unity takes precedent over racial equality. But something we are going to see in this comparison is that even though white unity takes precedent, we are seeing different laws come up. For instance, in the United States, the North does attempt some reassurance for racial equality with policies like the 14th and 15th Amendment that are specifically geared to limit the South's power. In the Cape, white supremacy was allowed legal representation, but in the United States, it was nothing more than a dream for white supremacists in the South, especially on a national level. In the book on page 198 through 199, it says, In the United States, legalized discrimination remained a localized exception rather than a national norm, whereas in South Africa it was Cape tradition of equal rights for every civilized man that represented a provincial divergence from the overt Herrenvolk principle that prevailed elsewhere. Oh my gosh. I am going to go ahead and say... We're ending it there. <laughs> Wrapping it up. You know what time it is. Tea time. Yes, we're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be back with you. All right, we're back. <laughs> and uh, today I am having, it's really boring, Lady Grey. I'll tell you, to be honest with you, pretty soon I'm going to want some iced tea because it's getting pretty hot out there. I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What about you? What are you having? I'm having game micha. It's a green tea with roasted rice and popcorn. And it's very yummy. It's so good. It's also a traditional tea. It's blended with sencha. It's really good. 
I guess I'll just jump right into who my artist is. My artist's name is Michelle Kim. And the thing about her that's kind of awesome. I think it's pretty clear that she kind of wants to stay a little ambiguous and mysterious. I don't want to talk too much about her in the sense that I feel it's imposing on that at all. So if you click on her about on Spotify, the only thing it says is see me, hear me. So it's very interesting because to me, my interpretation of that is that her music kind of speaks for itself and that if you want to see her and hear her, listen to her music. But if you go to her Twitter and her Instagram, it's very clear that she's very active within the Black Lives Matter and other humanitarian causes. So she's definitely somebody totally worth following. And her music is also amazing. My favorite song by her is called It'll Be Okay. Her song is very warm. It's kind of like a cup of tea. Very, very soothing. And, you know, I think today we struggle with so much sad stuff and so much difficult things that we have to get through and even though we can't turn a blind eye to them that doesn't mean that we can't have moments of rest and I think her music is great to rest your soul too yes yes um my artist is going spaceward he is a black artist from Texas and the song I'm going to be recommending is quarantine with me it's a very cute song that I think is reminiscent of the living situation most of us find ourselves in if we're lucky enough to live in a state that's still enforcing quarantine yeah (laughs) our choice for our activists this week is no other than the lovely chicks they're formerly known as the dixie chicks but they dropped the dixie from their name they've always used their voices for political activism which is awesome and in their latest music video at the very end they take time and put every single victim of police violence on screen and the crazy part about it is that it takes forever because that's how long the list is it's heartbreaking but it's also so very important for us to have people like that making us remember them making us see their faces and reminding us how important it is for us to stay true to this cause and also i think that the chicks are great examples of what it's like to be true activists they have been activists throughout the years but more importantly they adapt and they understand that dropping a part of their name that is offensive even though they meant it in no way before to be offensive means a lot because they're recognizing that they can take ownership and understand that their intentions were never to be offensive but at the same time just because their intentions weren't to be offensive doesn't mean that it wasn't and so they're just really awesome and I think that they're doing great work and so we just want to give them a little shout out yes as far as news we want to bring attention to the rulings that we're seeing out of the supreme court In addition to being landmark for those particular cases, in some of these instances upholding things that are really in line with the causes that are important to those of us that are intersectional feminists, their reasoning behind the rulings is very important because it not only tells us how they might rule on issues in the future, but it also shows us what loopholes there may be in the current legal system for injustice to occur. Yeah, and there's a lot of room for loopholes that are abused, like, on the daily by so many of our representatives and people who are supposed to be protecting us. Even laws that aren't overtly regarding intersectional 
feminism, stuff just like the recent ruling about the Electoral College, it's important to understand that they might also be trying to placate these causes to silence us, but they're not actually making any major differences. And so we have to be careful not to feel too easily satisfied with what they end up doing because it doesn't necessarily mean that our cause is finished and it doesn't mean that our call has been answered. Mm-hmm. Yes, another really good example besides the Electoral College that you just brought up was the case regarding women's rights and pro-choice. In the ruling, their reasoning was not in any direction as far as pro-choice or pro-life, but instead was maintaining the precedent that was established in a previous ruling. So their stance on that issue is still not clear. Yeah, and so um, I think that about wraps it up. Next week, we mean it this time, (laughs) we're going to be wrapping up George M. Fredrickson's White Supremacy. So look forward to that. Hopefully you enjoyed today. And um, I think that's it. Yeah. Bye.